I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program is Professor Lloyd J. Dumas talking about the peacekeeping economy. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Sign show. Well, military might is often viewed as the surest solution to national security. But although military force may sometimes be necessary, long lasting and enduring security may result more likely from forging strong economic ties. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Lloyd J. Dumas. Professor Dumas is a professor of political economy, economics, and public policy at the University of Texas at Dallas. Author of numerous books and journal articles on the subject, his latest release, The Peacekeeping Economy, using economic relationships to build a more peaceful, prosperous, and secure world. Explores this issue for a uh, general audience. And Professor Dumas, we're really very uh, glad to have you on the program today. Thank you very much for joining us. It's good to be with you, Charles. Certainly a a great book, The Peacekeeping Economy. Would you talk about economics as really more of a driver than military might for securing uh, the world? Actually, I've been writing about the economic implications of military spending for many years. I've come to the conclusion that it's very negative, which is, by the way, a conclusion that was also shared by Adam Smith, the founder of capitalism. So it's hardly a critique of capitalism, but I've been very concerned about that. About 20 years ago, a colleague of mine who was an international law professor called me up and told me he was writing a book on alternative ways of keeping the nation secure and the world secure. And he asked what economists had to contribute to that thinking. I hadn't thought about it much until that time, but that got me started thinking. And all these years later, resulted in this book, Peacekeeping Economy. I see. And the general thrust of it is that rather than spending all the money on, on their military, it would be better spent forging economic ties? Yes. In fact, the idea that military strength is the beginning and end of security is very widely held and deeply believed, but it's not true. And in fact, it's easy to see that it's not true. If you look at during the Cold War period, the United States spent an enormous amount of resources trying to prevent and protect against an attack from the Soviet Union. But during most of that time, France and Britain had enough nuclear capability and delivery capability to do huge damage to the United States. I doubt that we spent 10 minutes worrying about them attacking us. And the reason for the difference is obvious. The relationship with the Soviet Union was hostile. The relationship with Britain and France was friendly. So it's quite obvious that uh, the quality of relationships and the character of relationships is much more important to real security than simply military strength. And economic relationships have a particular capacity to provide a binding force between nations to create incentives, positive incentives to keep the peace. Because if they're done right, and only if they're done right, they can create mutual gain. So both parties gaining from the relationship won't want to disrupt it. In fact, that's not just a nice um, thought 
or a theoretical possibility. The European Union is a very good practical real-world example of how this works. The European Union began as something called the European Coal and Steel Community in 1952. The uh, European Coal and Steel Community was created in the aftermath of World War II, primarily to, bu to bind France and Germany together in economic relationships that would keep the peace between them since they had gone to war repeatedly over the years. In fact, it has evolved into the European Union over time. And if you think back, even just to the 1980s, the European Union included in its membership Germany, France, Italy, Britain, Portugal, Spain, Belgium. These countries have fought countless wars with each other over the generations, over the centuries. And yet, if you were to ask anybody in any of those countries what the likelihood of them going to war with any other EU country today is, they wouldn't take it as a serious question. They don't think that way anymore. And there's got to be a reason for that, and I argue that an important part of the reason is because they're all gaining so much by their economic relationships with each other. When they have conflicts, and they have quite a few, they want to settle them. They want to find a way out. They don't even think about shooting at each other anymore. There's a very important lesson in that. And examples of the conflicts they've had include the Eurozone question. What are they going to do about the Euro? They're yelling at each other. They're disagreeing with each other. Nobody is thinking about threatening military force. It just isn't part of their thinking toward each other anymore because of the web of balanced, mutually beneficial economic relationships they have with each other. And, and that's really part of it, is that the, the relationships need to be balanced so that they're all intertwined in, in, in an equal way, in a way. Yes, in fact, that's critical, because economic relationships can also provoke war. They can provoke hostility if they're very unbalanced and exploitative. In fact, you don't need to go very far to think of an example. The United States, the American Revolution, was caused in part by the exploitative trade monopolies that Britain had established with the United States. It was partly our anger at the hostility at that kind of exploitation that led us to break free of Britain. So in fact, in our own history, we have examples of that. Um, but clearly, if you have unbalanced relationships that are, where one party is getting 90% of the benefit, the other party is only getting, gaining a little, it doesn't create much of a binding force, and it may, in fact, seem so unfair to people that it generates hostility and provokes conflict. But if relationships are balanced and mutually beneficial so that both parties are gaining substantially from the relationship, they have a strong incentive not to disrupt it. They don't want it to go away, so they have to do what they need to do to settle any disagreements among them short of threatening and disrupting and destroying the relationship. That seems to be a very critical point, but how is it possible for certain country relationships where one group is clearly or doesn't have the same resources as, as another group, and that leads to the conflict? Well, there are at least two important aspects of balance in relationships that are critical. One is balance of benefit, and that is difficult to do when there's a huge difference in uh, economic development levels between countries, say, between, uh, it's no problem establishing balanced relationships between France and Italy or between France and the United States. It is much more difficult to establish balanced economic relationships between, 
let's say, South Korea, which is quite developed, and, uh, and North Korea, which is very underdeveloped, um, that's a much more difficult problem. But it's always possible to establish another kind of balance, and that's balance of decision power over the relationship. In other words, both parties have an equal say in how the relationship is shaped and how it's carried out. And even if the benefits are difficult to balance because of a big difference in economic development levels, it still is possible to balance decision power, and that also creates the kind of the right kind of incentives. Because, I mean, just think about for a moment how people react if they're treated as if they're cheated or they're treated as irrelevant underlings who don't have anything to say about it, or if they're treated as valued and respected partners. There's a whole different feeling to those two different situations. So you can always establish balance and decision power. But it's also why the question is you raise a very good one, and it's one of the reasons why one of the principles of peacekeeping economy is to emphasize development, precisely because it is much easier to establish balanced, mutually beneficial relationships among countries at a higher and more equal level of development. And also because by development, by improving economic conditions in a country, you create a much stronger group of people who have a lot to lose by conflicts breaking out, and therefore a lot to gain by preventing a conflict from degenerating into war. That seems oftentimes at odds with the way a lot of countries have approached other countries, especially you know the, the great empires are oftentimes to keep other countries at a lower level of economic development. Yes, that's true. And as a matter of fact, going back to Adam Smith again, he wrote The Wealth of Nations, the, the founding book of capitalism in 1776, a year of some importance to our country's history. And actually what Smith argued in The Wealth of Nations was that Britain would be better off, Britain would be better off if it severed the colonial relationships it had and traded with those countries on a more equal basis. He argued that the colonies would certainly be better off, but that actually the British people would gain more from giving up the trade monopolies and developing more balanced relationships with their their trading partners with the same country. So there's always an incentive. I think there's a tendency for us to believe that if we dominate a relationship, we can guarantee that we'll get what we want out of it. But in fact, relationships that are mutually balanced are much stronger and much more enduring. And one of the things that Smith argued, which I completely agree with, is that in order to keep people under your thumb, if you're dominating and exploiting them, you have to have a very powerful military structure to keep them under threat. And that's very, very expensive. So that does a lot of economic damage to the country. And in fact, that's one of the reasons, it's one of the other motivations for my writing this book, because I believe very strongly that our focus on uh, huge military budgets and a military, strictly primarily military approach to security has caused a lot of damage to our economy over the long run. Since you have a science show, let me just explain that the role of science and engineering is critical in this analysis. Um, what engineers and scientists do that's so important economically is they develop knowledge that results in better products and better ways of making products. It's the better ways of making products and the better products that keep our products attractive and allow us, for most of our history, to pay high wages and still produce products so efficiently because of these new technologies that we could keep the prices of our products reasonable 
and retain strong markets. But what's happened over time, over the last 30, 40, 50 years, we've taken, since the end of the Second World War, we've taken about a third of our engineering and scientific talent and directed it at military-oriented purposes, which means those people were developing better warheads and better guidance systems for missiles. They were not developing better automobiles or better um, television sets and the like. And as a result, we slowed down the rate of civilian technological progress in the U.S., which is crucial for our industries to keep competitive. The only way you can pay high wages and still remain competitive is if you have better and better products and if you can offset the high wages with more efficient production so you can keep costs down. That's what we did so well for so long. But with that drain of technologists into the military sector, we've created a situation where civilian technology is slowed down in the United States as compared to our foreign competitors. And so we haven't been able to pay high wages and hold our markets. We've lost literally millions and millions of good-paying industrial jobs as those markets evaporated. What I'm arguing is if that were necessary for our security, that would be one thing. But if we take this peacekeeping economic approach to security, we'll be able to cut back substantially on our military budget, move a lot of those engineers and scientists back into reinvigorating the economy, and really build the American economy's strength over time. That will be crucial to both our prosperity and our security. So the military spending not just a monetary drain, but also we're, we're creating our own brain drain internally. Exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, I'm not so worried about the money, although the money's an issue. I'm more worried about we take our most talented engineers and scientists and direct them in ways that, that actually doesn't help our economy at all. I think that's one of the reasons we've lost our competitive position, especially vis-a-vis -vis countries like Germany and Japan, which not so coincidentally after the Second World War were prevented by the terms of surrender we forced on them from building up big militaries, and therefore they focused their attention on their economic activities and became powerhouses economically. Similarly, China today has built up an enormous amount of economic strength and it's beginning to build up its military, too. China is no more immune to these problems than any other nation is. If they continue to build up their military strength, they're going to undermine their economy. And no matter how strong the Chinese economy looks today, in 10 or 20 years from now, it won't look strong if they continue to do what they're doing. There's a lesson here, a historical lesson for us to learn. In fact, in, in the mid-1980s, an historian named Paul Kennedy at Yale University, wrote a book talking about the rise and fall of the great powers. Over 500 years, he argued, countries have become powerful and important on the strength of their economic well-being and prosperity and capabilities. And then they built up militaries to protect their interests, so to speak, around the world. And that has burdened their economy and, and ruined their source of economic strength. And so they've moved out of the center of the world's stage and become second-rate powers. This, can, this is happening to the United States. It will happen to China. It will happen to any other nation that takes this route. But there's no reason for us to do this if we approach security primarily, not solely, as a result of a peacekeeping economy approach. We can have prosperity, economic strength, influence, and security all at the same time.
What about the argument that a lot of the technological developments that occur in the military eventually wind up getting spun off into the, the private sector and then go on to spur the economy? Yes. This so-called spin-off argument is true. I mean, there are technologies that spin off from military research to civilian work. But there's also this kind of brain drain effect that I'm talking about, where the uh, use of our engineers and scientists for military purposes takes them away from directly looking for technologies to improve televisions and automobiles and steel manufacturing and the like. So the question from an economic point of view is not do these effects exist, they both do. It's which one is stronger. And the evidence is compelling that the brain drain effect is much stronger than the, the spin-off effect. The spin-off effect is positive in improving civilian technology, but the brain drain effect is very negative. And what I mean by evidence is look at the situation I just described a moment ago. After the Second World War, Germany and Japan were prevented from building up big militaries by the terms of surrender. As a result, they focused their attention and their engineering and scientific talent, which is considerable, on civilian industry. And they took lots of our markets away. There are areas in which we invented the technology, like um, video recording technology invented in the United States, which the Japanese and other countries uh, have taken away from us completely or virtually completely. So um, there is considerable evidence that the if the brain drain effect were not stronger, then the spin-off from military research would make American civilian technology the best in the world. But it isn't. Our military technology is the best in the world. Our civilian technology in some areas lags behind Japan, Germany, and a number of other countries. So the evidence is pretty strong that um, although there is a spin-off, it's not big enough to make up for the drain effect. And you can think of it this way. I mean, when you're doing research on missile guidance systems, you might find some things that are useful for designing radios more effectively. But primarily what you're going to find is the kind of science and technology you need to make better, better guidance systems for the missiles. If you're looking for better ways of designing radios or video recording technology or the like, then you are going to find more of the information you need to do that. So it's a question of relative emphasis. There is some spin-off, but it's not nearly big enough to make up for the drain. Given that this has historically been the prevalent view of, of trying to build up the military, how can the U.S. or any other nation avoid going down this road? I think we just ought to learn from our own history. Look what's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those wars have cost us somewhere between $1 trillion, that's a very low estimate, to 3 or $4 trillion, huge amount of money, considerable thousands of lives, many thousands of lives have been lost in those conflicts. And what have we gained by them? Afghanistan is not secure. Iraq is not secure. Our national interests have not been served by those wars. We've created considerable hostility, and the evidence is pretty good that we've generated by our actions in those countries at least as many terrorists as we've killed in those countries. So taking a hard look at this, taking a clear-eyed and hard look at the situation, it's difficult to argue that military spending on high levels has brought us into a secure world, that this approach always works, or even mostly works. I think if you consider instead another example of our history from further ago, 
the relationship between the United States and Canada. You know, we have such a positive relationship with Canada. Americans don't even think, half the time they think about Canada is almost the same country because we're such so close to each other in relationship. But actually, the Canadians were the bad guys in the American Revolution. They're the ones who supported the British, who were against the revolution. And we were very, very hostile to them in the early part of our, our history. In fact, in the mid-19th century, there was a naval arms race on the Great Lakes between the U.S. and Canada, and it looked very much like we might go to war. Now, how did this change to this enormously positive relationship we have today? A good part of the reason was building balanced economic relationships between the two countries, which tied them together so strongly that neither one of them, even when we disagree, and we do disagree with the Canadians from time to time, has an incentive to threaten the other. For example, during Vietnam War, the Canadians gave sanctuary to a lot of Americans who were trying to avoid the military. It was not a policy our government particularly liked, but there was no thought, not just no threat, but no thought of threatening the Canadians in any serious way as a result of them doing what we didn't want them to do. We have too much to gain by maintaining the quality of the relationship we have with them. The EU nations are another great example, not involving the United States, but the European Union, with all of their troubles and all of their disagreements, these countries have fought so many wars with each other over the centuries, yet they don't even think about fighting war with each other anymore. So it can be done. We, have, we know that anything that, is, that has been done is possible. This has been done in parts of the world. We just have to spread out that approach more broadly. Well, again, given that the policy of, of the U.S. seems to be largely military, how do you think that they can go about changing this policy? Well, I think one of the things that's going to push us in that direction is the enormous pressure on our country to get the government budget deficit under control. In fact, speaking of military men, Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said that the biggest national security threat to the United States is this huge budget deficit. So this pressure to balance the budget, the military military spending is a huge amount of our budgetary, much budgetary spending. And in fact, we currently spend on the military almost as much, not quite as much, as all the nations, the rest of the nations in the world combined. So there is tremendous financial pressure on us to cut back on our expenditures. The military arena is one where we can do it safely. I'm not saying we should eliminate the military or make it a weak force. We can have a stronger, more effective military at much lower cost and release a lot of these engineers and scientists back into the civilian economy, build our economic strength, which is very critical to our national security as well as to our prosperity. So I think, in fact, the economic pressures that we're feeling including the pressures to balance the budget and do something about the national debt, are pushing us in this direction. If we keep our eyes open and we just look at the world, we'll see that this is not a threatening possibility. We're not going to make ourselves insecure. By focusing in the economic arena, we will build our strength rather than reducing it. Uh, what do you see as being the key elements of our economy that you think we, we should specialize in? Well, I think there is no reason to assume that the United States cannot rebuild its manufacturing sector to be a rival of any nation in the world. We've, as I said, we've lost millions and millions of good-paying, solid jobs in industry and manufacturing. We can certainly take a lot of those jobs back. We are, we are not going to take all of those jobs back, 
because there are other powerful producers in the world today, too. But we can rebuild the manufacturing sector of our economy, which is the critical part of our economy, make it stronger, recreate the jobs that paid well. So a lot of the jobs that we've created in the last 20 or 30 years have been low-paying jobs in the low-paying end of the service sector, mostly in retail trade. That's not how you build a prosperous economy. You can't just focus on those kind of poor-paying jobs. It's one of the reasons why American standard of living for most Americans has stagnated over the last 30 to 40 years. Pretty much most Americans have the same standard of living they had in, in uh, the mid-1970s, not a pattern that was common in our history before. If we want to keep improving our standard of living, if we want to rebuild the standard of living, get out of this stagnation that so many Americans have felt over the last decades, we're going to have to do something to rebuild our manufacturing economy, other parts of our economy. But the good news is we can do it. We have the resources we need. We just have to set about redirecting our attention and the focus of these resources, and then we can certainly make the country stronger and more secure at the same time. That's the that's the lesson and the message of the peacekeeping economy. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was in South Korea, and I gave some talks about this situation with respect to the North, and I gave to them that although they had started to build economic relationships with the North, which was a very good thing for improving the security and reducing hostility, those relationships were too unbalanced, even in decision power. Basically, the North Koreans supplied cheap labor. The South Koreans supplied everything else and made all the decisions. And I argued to them they were on the right track, but they had to change direction a little bit to make those relationships more and more balanced if they really wanted to build, to break down hostility between the countries. And by the way, I think the same thing is true of Israel and the Palestinians, another very difficult case. The Israelis and the Palestinians have economic relationships, but for the most part, the Israelis hold all the cards. If they moved in the direction of more balanced relationships, I think they could restart the, the peace process in a really rigorous way, a really vigorous way, and uh, and build stronger relationships between them that would make them both more secure and get them out of this constant state of hostilities they've been in for decades and decades now. What, what do you think are the prospects? Do you think these views are getting adopted by these other countries, or is, is it still a long way to go? I think there's still some distance to go, but I think it's making some progress. In fact, in the Israeli-Palestinian case, I'm certain that there are Israeli business people and Palestinian business people who have more balanced relationships now and who would push in that direction if they got any kind of chance to do it. I think we need to open our eyes to what's going on in the world. We we think that our military approach is the beginning and end of security. It's not. If we open our eyes to how the world has changed and to how important relationships have become in creating security, we certainly are capable of moving in different directions now and in creating a, a world in general, not just the U.S., but a world in general that's much more secure than it is today. We're never going to eliminate our conflicts and we still need to have a military force to deal with uh, with the few bad actors that there are in the world who nothing will deter. Uh, but we do not need to spend so much of our national budget to generate such huge budget deficits by spending enormous amounts on the military. It's not making us secure. It's making us less secure as well as less prosperous over time. So 
So I have confidence that we can learn from our past. We can learn from what's going on in the EU. We can learn from the world around us and move in a different direction. You know, sometimes people have said to me, this seems like an idealistic world you're talking about, but it's not idealistic, it's practical. And in fact, um, not only isn't it idealistic, it's the ultimate source of realism to replace what doesn't work, this huge military threat approach, with what does work, building relationships that bind countries together in mutual benefit. We have evidence on both sides, the military stuff, doesn't work all that well, creates a lot of problems along with the problems that it solves. And the building of economic relationships that are balanced and mutually beneficial solves a lot of those problems. So we have what we need to see in real-world experience that this works. It's the ultimate realism to replace what doesn't work with what does work. Uh, the new book is called The Peacekeeping Economy, Using Economic Relationships to Build a Peaceful, Prosperous, and Secure World. And uh, Professor Dumas, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Pleasure to be with you, Charles. Take care. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.